Welcome to Spirits Podcast, a boozy dive into mythology, legends, and folklore. Every week we pour a drink and learn about a new story from around the world. I'm Amanda, and I'm doing the intro solo this week because Julia has the flu. Oh no. This is episode 162, Mythology of Pokemon Sword and Shield. And it is an extremely good episode. I feel like I say that all the time in these intros, but this one in particular, we talk about the world building of Sword and Shield. We talk about individual Pokemon and the the stuff that inspired them. It is not a spoilery episode. So if you haven't gotten Sword and Shield or you haven't finished it yet, don't worry. We tell you when we're going to recap the plot, and then you can skip for just a minute or two to make sure that you don't get spoiled. Thanks, too, to Eric Silver for suggesting this episode. We uh, we love doing Pokemon. I loved the first Pokemon episode we did, and it was very exciting to talk about uh, British stuff and word origins and other things that get me very excited, and then to learn all about the mythological origins of some of the best Sword and Shield pokes. But first, welcome and thank you to our newest patrons, Brittany, Rachel, and Hess Lina Sam. You join the wonderful ranks of our supporting producer-level patrons, Philip, Megan, Deborah, Molly, Skyla, Samantha, Sam. Sammy, Neil, Jessica, and Phil Fresh. And our legend-level patrons, Audra, Chris, Jack Marie, Kylo the Husky, Mark Body, Morgan, Mr. Folk, Josie, Sarah, and BME Up Scotty. Thanks to you and the hundreds of other people who decide to support Spirits every month on Patreon, we get to keep doing this, and we love it so, so much. So thank you. Now, for this episode, we were drinking Pim's Cups, which I describe and tell you all about in the actual episode. But it was fun to choose a kind of British-themed drink for this one because, surprise, Sword and Shield is just just set in Britain. And finally this week, instead of recommending a book or a podcast or TV show, I would love to urge anyone who can to donate to the Fire Relief Fund for First Nations communities in Australia. This is a fundraiser by and for First Nations people who are affected by the bushfires going on in Australia right now. So right now they're about halfway to their $1 million goal. And I'm going to put a link to the GoFundMe in the description of this podcast. It's a great time to educate yourself on climate change, to have those hard conversations with people who might not uh, believe the the science and the facts behind it, and to do all that we can individually and as a community and a globe to make sure that this planet is around for the next generations of people to come. So thank you for your support. And without further ado, enjoy Spirits Podcast Episode 162, The Mythology of Pokemon Sword and Shield. So Amanda, over the holidays, and I think a little before that, a lot of people probably either were gifted or picked up for themselves Pokemon Sword and Shield. I know you're one of those people. Gotta catch them all, Julia. Gotta catch them all. And you did. You did catch them all, I'm sure. Didn't catch them all yet. Did beat the the game, but I'm working on catching them all. I'm I'm so proud of you. Uh, So I haven't played Pokemon Sword and Shield, but from what I've been told, it very much has a lot of European and specifically British mythology involved in it. It sure does. It is shockingly British. Um, And a lot of the internet, especially when the trailer came out, was like, wait, is the new Pokemon game set in Britain? Uh, And it kind of is. Yeah. Uh, so can you can you tell me a little bit about the gameplay and how it's shockingly British? So there are basically there's like a founding myth of the game. Uh, but before we get to that, the setting is just completely the UK. Like it is just the UK, but it's inverted. So like imagine looking at the UK from the very tippity top in Scotland, like looking toward the south. Okay. Um, so like the city you start out in is very much like Scotland. It's rural. It's beautiful. There's a city that's just like Edinburgh that you pass through. And 
in general, it's kind of like a little bit steampunky, very into trains. And there are a bunch of little kind of uh, odes to the UK that we get. Um, my favorite is I'm going to talk when we discuss the myth of the game about the wield, the slumbering wield, mm-hmm. which is um, like a, a very significant um, location for the bigger plot. But what I didn't know is that I heard that name and I was like, that sounds just super medieval to me. So let me look it up. And in fact, the Weald is an area of southeast England between the North and South Downs. So it was like a primeval forest, like a very dense forest. Mm. Um, and the word Weald, when it's lowercase, just means kind of like a forest. Um, and it has, there's like the sandstone high wields, the clay low wields, and then the green sand ridge, all of which sound like someone made them up in Arthurian lore. And my headcanon is that the Weald is like miniaturized in the wild area, which is right in the middle of the Galar map. And it's just, it's almost like the safari zone in earlier games, but good. Uh, where there's like a bunch of little microclimates. There's different Pokemon that pop up. You can like ride your bike around. You can, there's like lakes, there's stones you can find and items and people to to battle and people to go get buried treasure for you. It's a wonderful area. How do you spell Weald? W-E-A-L-D. Oh, interesting. Huh. In my mind, I was spelling it wild with an E at the end. Yeah, very similar. Okay. Um, and so that was just one, then the first one that you kind of come across uh, location-wise. There's also Ballon Lee, which is definitely the most Weald-esque town um, and also very British in that it's like lit by glowing mushrooms. It's nestled mm. in the hollows of huge ancient trees. Uh, it's beautiful. I'm sure if you see a screen cap, you're going to be like, oh, yes, of course, that is a fairy town. My favorite fantasy trope is like bioluminescent mushrooms in bulk. Well, next time you are at my house, I'm happy to let you walk through it. Yes. It is beautiful. You go through a like tangled wood to get there. Um, and then it's specializing in fairy and psychic Pokemon. Of course, obviously. It's literally just a fairy mound. And the name Balan Lee means forest clearing. Um, but it's also, I didn't really realize this, but Bulbapedia, my new best friend uh, in terms of Same. Pokemon websites, um, also lists the names of each town in other languages. So in Spanish, the name of Ballon Lee is Pueblo Plié, like Plié in ballet, uh, which is amazing. And in French, it's Corifé, which uh, is like a high-ranking dancer, but also it has Fay in it. So like it is just an elegant, um, you know, acrobatic like fairy city. Interesting. I love that. There's also, of course, the name Galar. That's the region. And so Bubblepedia was like, that might mean gala, aka special occasion, or gallant, or Galahad. So, you know, we're just right there. It may also be an anagram of Saint Graal, which is the French name of the Holy Grail. Oh, interesting. I like that a lot. Those are really cool little additions. Yeah, there's like there's Sir Chester, which is a bath-esque town, uh, which is, of course, where Roman baths are um, in the UK, a wonderful kind of like not quite a ruin because they're still almost operational. You can walk around and stuff. Um, And that is where the heroes of Sword and Shield's lore recuperated after they defeated the Darkest Day. Are those those the big pups? They are the (gasps) big pokes. So those big pokes that you may recognize from the cover art are Zacian and Zamazenta. Great, Great names. So they basically, you don't know as you play through the game who the heroes of the region are. And if you're still playing through Sword and Shield, feel free to skip forward about a minute and a half as I describe the plot here. So they 
basically like saved the region. You know, Dynamaxing Pokemon, they're like the gigantic Big pokes boys. that you can now, exactly, you can do it um, in the game. And it's like a new feature in Sword and Shield where they like grow extremely huge and you can like face off for three or five turns um, at a, a massive scale. They're super powerful. And in the game, the plot is that a like capitalist <laughs> wants to artificially um, make Pokemon Dynamax, which otherwise is kind of like a natural phenomenon. You can do it only in natural hotspots, stuff like that. Um, and it's like in danger of destroying the region because <sighs> 3,000 years ago, that was also a threat. Like there were Pokemon just kind of Dynamaxing all over the place. Oh. And Zacian and Zamazenta took up arms to fight uh, using their sword and shield against those uh, those kind of deadly Pokemon. I still love the pup that just be- had like sword in mouth. Mouth sword. Yeah. I know. They're adorable. But moreover, I, I think it's really, really fascinating the way that mythology informs the game and the way that you understand this mythology. So throughout the course of the game, you don't know who the heroes are. You're not really sure what the darkest day was. People just talk about it. And like you're a 12 year old. And so you're like, uh, I'm not really sure what's happening here. But you kind of come to the understanding of the plot over time. There's a mural that you walk by and someone's like, oh, yeah, that's, you know, the heroes, the darkest day. And you're like, OK, there are Stonehenge type structures. There are statues. Um, there's like a, an ionic pillar in the bath esque town, uh, Sir Chester, that you come across. And of course, you also find the rusty sword and shield, the artifacts. And people try to steal them. You got to steal them back. You have to equip the heroes with them to re-defeat the evil. And so unlike a game where you just kind of like open a history book, right? And it's like, this is what happened. Or your mom is like, don't you remember, honey? Um, (laughs) You really get to see history for yourself and also see the way that people like self-mythologize and the ways that the society decided to demarcate this event, but also the ways in which it started to forget. Like the mural is crumbling, the statues are all crumbling, you know, the column is kind of just like in the middle of a town um, and not really talked about. So I just thought from a like historiography perspective, it was absolutely fascinating. Oh, it sounds really, really cool. I can't wait to play it. I got to get a Switch so I can play it. And I was talking about this with uh, with Eric Silver and he gave me the, the very good point that it's very like city founding myth. Like it's very Arthurian. It's very kind of like founding of Rome, mm-hmm. um, where there are these iconic figures that's defeat an evil, and now we get to live in peace um, after that. But you know, I'm, I'm not super familiar with Pokemon games in between, like Sapphire and Ruby and Sword and Shield. But what I do know from those earlier games is that often it was like human society is human society, and then you're like, oh yeah, that Pokemon. I guess it's a god. Like I guess Mewtwo also lives in this world, and it feels very much like Pokemon have their own traditions and histories that we don't know all about. We just kind of like subjugate them for uh, pleasure and battle. In this world, much more kind of like Detective Pikachu, it's sort of like what would a world co-founded by Pokemon look like, where our histories have always been intertwined. They're not a separate society. And, you know, they're not just kind of like stand in for gods or spirits. They're like part of society and the world and they have agency and you can convince them to do things or not. Um, And it was just, yeah, it's just fascinating. And I hope uh, that lots of smart think pieces will be written about this because I'm sure I'm not doing the whole concept justice. I'm sure you're doing it great justice. Uh, Amanda, since this is very much a British centered Pokemon game and European centered Pokemon game, but mostly British, um, I'm going to suggest we make Pim's Cups. Oh, Pim's Cups. First cocktail I had in England. I was going to say, Amanda, you've you've been to England. You've you've spent your first years of cocktail drinking in England. Can you tell me why the Pim's Cup is so important? Uh, It's just a very iconic British thing. And when you think about like, I don't know, teeth achingly 
uh, on the nose British things. Like the Pimm's Cup is definitely one of them. It's also like barely alcoholic, uh, which I really enjoy. But people, when they make them at home, like spike them with different things. Uh, but it's just it's very British. The label of uh, Pimm's, the the like mixer is extremely like old timey. And it's also very beautiful. So it's like a giant cup with ice and fruit in it and garnishes and herbs and stuff. So it um it's just I don't know. It's very like, let's sit back and watch the horses. I love it. Fantastic. So with with Pim's cup in hand, um, I will start us off by introducing one of the first Pokemon that was introduced as the new games were kind of ramping up. And that is Impidimp. Yes. Do you have an Impidimp in the game, Amanda? I do. I caught him in the tangle you walk through before the fairy town. Love it. So Impidimp, as its name suggests, is inspired by imps of European folklore. Uh, it is a dark end fairy type. And the Pokedex entries, I think, are particularly insightful. So, quote, through its nose, it sucks in the emanations produced by people and Pokemon when they feel annoyed. It thrives off this negative energy. Ooh, very poltergeist. Yeah. And it sneaks into people's homes stealing things and feasting on the negative energy of the frustrated occupants. So this is not particularly far off from mythology in the terms of like imps and European folklore. And I think it also kind of ties into house spirits like we've discussed in past episodes. Yeah, definitely. So imps are typically seen in Germanic folklore as a lesser demon or mischievous fairy. They're not necessarily evil. They're just mischievous and prone to cause trouble for the average person. So impidimp might actually specifically be linked to the Lincoln imp, which comes from a legend from Lincolnshire. So this story is actually retold by Susan O'Neill in the folklore of Lincolnshire, who says that the legend dates back to around the 14th century. So in the story, the devil, who is annoyed by the completion of the Lincoln Cathedral in Lincoln, England, visits the church accompanied by two imps. So the imps begin to wreak havoc on the building until an angel appears and orders them to cease. One of the imps is bold enough to throw a rock at the angel. Bad move, my dude. Oh, no. And as a result, is instantly petrified and turned to stone. <laughs> the other imp and the devil flee, but the petrified imp remains and is placed in the art of the church rafters. So here's a quote from the original story. For the tiniest angel with amethyst eyes and hair spun like gold, for the altar did rise, pronouncing these words in a dignified tone. O impious imp, be ye turned to stone. Excellent. So good. So excellent. I love it. I love a good story. Also, that description one tiny angel amethyst eyes yeah golden spun hair love it it's, it's just like fanfiction.net back in 2004 julia everyone smells like sandalwood and you know has eyes that are some <laughs> shade of gemstone that change based on the weather mm -hmm. always and her mood. Mm. The description from the Pokedex of Impidimp also talks about sneaking into homes and causing mischiefs, and that seems to align with the MO of Bogarts. Ooh. So according to Lancashire Folklore by Jay Harland and T.T. Wilkinson, the Bogart is a household spirit that causes mischief, making things disappear in the home, turning milk sour, tearing bedsheets, pulling on people's ears, putting clammy hands on people's faces while they sleep. Oh, no. That's very bad. Probably worst of all, they're known to follow a family wherever they may move or flee. How are you supposed to appease them? The only way of keeping a bogart away is by hanging a horseshoe on your front door and leaving a pile of salt outside your bedroom door. Okay. Both very doable. Uh, honestly, yeah. I hope the pile of salt isn't, like, too 
piley, you know, like a little, a little bit of salt, <laughs> sure. But like, if you're like stepping out of your bedroom to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night, and then the like gritty salt, you slip on it and fall. It's not good. Maybe you could put it in a dish, or does that sort of get around the inconvenience you're supposed to, uh, <laughs> you know, suffer through? I think it has to be inconvenient for all of us. Yeah, the word. So Impidimp evolves into Morgrim, and as the description in the Pokedex says, it says, With sly cunning, it tries to lure people into the woods. Some believe it to have the power to make crops grow. So this is actually really reminiscent of the fact that many, like, demonic and fey beings uh, were worshipped before the introduction of Christianity to the region and were demonized as a result. Right. So we've talked about that before. Lol, it's not pagan, it's fine. Except now. Well, it's not pagan, it's fine. Except, lol, now they're small, tiny demons? Sure. Very, like, will-o'-the-wisp, red-cap vibes. Yes, red-cap vibes, for sure, in the luring people into the woods kind of thing. Bugbear also very much implies, yeah, no, I, I like Impidimp. It's, it's cute and also fills all of my folklore requirements. A+. Plus. I also really, really love um, when the Pokemon names are just extremely straightforward. <laughs> and so it, the final um, evolution of Impidimp is Grim Snarl. Yes, it snarls and it's grim. But with two M's. So, you know, folklore. Mm -hmm. Folklore. Speaking of Pokemon with straightforward names, Amanda, and also yeah. adorable punny ones, Sinistee and Poltegeist. Extremely adorable. So these are two very British-flavored ghost-type Pokemon that were introduced into Sword and Shield. Sinistee is said to be created when a lonely spirit possesses a cold leftover cup of tea and that it can absorb the life force of anyone who can drink it. Oh, no. Uh, however, because it tastes so bad, it is typically spat out immediately, so it doesn't have the ability to absorb that life force too often. You look sad thinking about it. I, I did look sad. There's nothing sadder than a, a cold cup of tea on a counter that you intended to drink hot. That's fair. Yeah. Just forgetting about it. And then you're like, oh, no. I did that with a bowl of soup like not an hour ago. Oh, Jules. It happens. <laughs> The evolved form of Sinistee, as I mentioned before, is Pultigeist. I, it's so good. I can't. Really, the puns are, are next level in this yeah. game. Like, there's Lampent, which is just a lamp Pokemon. It's very good. Yeah. Uh, so here are some of the quotes from the Pokedex for Pultigeist. So, quote, Leaving leftover black tea unattended is asking for this Pokemon to come along and pour <laughs> itself into it, turning the tea into a new Pultigeist. And... When angered, it launches tea from its body into the offender's mouth. The tea causes strong chills if swallowed. Yeah, it's bitter and you don't want that. Yeah, plus we've already talked about, like, you know, the fact that people react to ghosts around with, like, chills and whatnot and how that can be tied to other things. The design and some of the language implies that Poltegeist is uh, partially inspired by genies as well. So I kind of want to talk about that. So instead yeah. of replacing the oil lamp, you have a teapot instead which I really Very like. Very cool. Uh, so long ago, we had a, a lost episode about Jin, and I would love to re-examine the story again with someone who grew up with those stories. But until then, we're going to do just a quick summary on them to touch on how it's related to Pokemon. Totally. So basically, they are spirits, neither explicitly good or evil, who are said to be made of smokeless fire. There is, Very cool. I know. There is a distinction between angels, demons, jinn, and humans. So humans and jinn are similar in that they can eat and drink, they can have children, they could die, and will eventually be judged 
for their actions in the afterlife. However, they are said to be invisible and are faster and stronger than the average human. There are some stories where jinn are said to be able to change their appearance at will. It really depends on the source that you're looking at. Some say they're always invisible. Some say they can change their appearance. So actually, the genie in the lamp story that most of us are familiar with, with stories like Aladdin, comes from the original story of Aladdin in Arabian Nights. However, Amanda, did you know that the original Aladdin tale was not part of the original Arabic text? No, I did not. Yes. So it was actually added to the French translation of the stories in the 18th century by Antoine Gallard, who heard the story himself from a Syrian storyteller named Hannah Diab. Also, for the record, uh, the story of Ali Baba and the 40 Thieves was also not part of the original text, but that is a story for another time. Hmm. However, there is another story in Arabian Nights that ties lamps with jinn, and that is the story of the city of brass. Very evocative name. How familiar are you with the, the Arabian Nights stories? Not at all. I never read them. Fair enough. Okay. So the story of the city of brass features a group of travelers trying to find a lost city, and during that mission, they find a vessel that held a jinnie that had been imprisoned by King Solomon. Wow. So in a separate story, also related to this, a fisherman discovers the brass vessel that held the jinnie in the story of the city of brass and opens it, releasing the jinnie as Modius. I'm going to point out, because I'm sure someone's going to bring it up to us, most sources refer to Asmodeus as a demon rather than a jinnie, while others refer to him as king of the jinn. So... Hmm. One or the other really depends on your sources. Again, most people and know Asmodeus as a demon, though. I'm just going to point out that I think Arabian Nights is the original MCU. Okay. Okay. Right? Like, stories take place in the same universe, impact each other, but not, like, necessarily referring directly to each other. I'm trying to think. I think that would be true if the MCU had, like, an overarching storyline that connects all of the stories, like the, um, right, like right. a conceit to it. Because the, the point of the Arabian Nights is uh, Shahrazad, in order to stay alive, has to continue telling a story each night in order for her not to be killed. I mean, Julia, we don't necessarily know that the MCU is not. We don't necessarily know that we're not going to, like, pan out of the last movie into a movie theater and see, like, Nick Fury in civilian clothes, like, having had a big dream. Jesus. Okay. Interesting. Bold choice. I love it. Just saying. Just saying. Okay. Okay. In the story, Asmodeus has been contemplating how, since he's been trapped for 400 years, if he would rather reward or punish the person that freed him? Very good question. Uh, one of the options was to grant that person wishes, but instead, when he comes out of the lamp, he is in a bad mood, so he simply allows sure. the fisherman to choose how he would like to be killed. Oh, well, not great. But that's the first kind of introduction of jinn and wish granting and also jinn and lamps. That is a very cool diversion. And if any of you know a great scholar of the Arabian Nights or of Jinn, we would love to talk to them. Yes, please. I would. Ooh, that cup is so nice. Amanda just taken a sip of her Thank tea you. in a gorgeous it's, cup. And I love it's it. It's by uh, Cassie Newman on Instagram. Go Cassie Newman. I would also like to point out that uh, Sinistee and Poltegeist canonically are genderless. So I think they should be the new agender icon. I think a like teal, purple, yellow uh, color scheme 
of uh, Sinistee is perfect, and I would love a plushie uh, for my desk. Yes. A fun fact, too, about the Poltegeist and Sinistee is that there's two versions of them in the game, and one of them is the antique version, and the other yes. is the, what is it called? The phony form. Yeah, the phony form, because it's making a joke to the fact that there's a lot of, like, fake British tea wear out there. And you do actually get the items you need to evolve Sinus uh, Tea in a sort of like desert trading post. Um, so you like walk through a kind of desert route and then get to a settlement on the edge of it. So I bet it is kind of evoking the like Arabian Nights uh, background. There you go. That That's our connection there. I didn't even know that because I haven't played the games. <laughs> there you go. All right. Awesome. Gotta play it, Julia. Come on. I want to. I want to real bad. Amanda, we're going to take a quick break, I think, because I want to talk a little bit more about Pokemon and particularly regional variations of Pokemon. But I think first we need to refill our Pims cups. Let's do it. We are sponsored this week by Skillshare. Now, they are the online learning community that is offering our listeners two free months of Skillshare Premium. You can make 2020 the year where you explore new skills, deepen your existing passions, and get lost in creativity with classes from Skillshare. They have so many fascinating classes that are well-produced and educational and broken down into bits that you can actually digest on topics like illustration, design, photography, video, freelancing, and all kinds of like online content creating type stuff, as well as crafts and painting and plant tending and other sort of hobbies and things that you might want to invest in this year. I am getting deep into knitting Skillshare because that is the hobby that I am trying to do to kind of take my mind off of the, you know, maybe creative fatigue that I might feel with my job and also to teach myself to do something with my hands, to make stuff instead of buying stuff. And it's thing that I really want to try to get better at. So watching Skillshare classes where the videos are well lit and the teachers are really, really skillful and there's a community where I can ask questions and leave photos of my projects and talk to the teacher directly is invaluable. And best of all, the short classes are a really perfect fit for my busy life and for yours. You can create real projects, get the support of fellow creatives and real teachers to accomplish real growth and make some progress toward your goals. So explore your creativity this year at Skillshare.com slash Spirits2, where our listeners get two free months of premium membership. That's two months free at Skillshare.com slash Spirits2. Speaking of creative businesses, we are also sponsored this week by HoneyBook. As a creative business owner, it is your job to make great stuff, but also if you have clients, it's your job to like help make them look good and accomplish what they want to do. But HoneyBook is there to make sure you look good as well because you can take on your day full of work and client work and doing all the things you have to do, knowing that all of the administrative stuff, the the bookkeeping, the logistics, the invoicing, that's all in one place. So you can stay organized and always look professional and not miss a deadline or forget to bill a client, which I definitely have done. HoneyBook's online business management tool organizes all of these communications with clients, bookings, contracts, invoices, the whole thing all in one place. It's perfect whether you're a freelancer, an entrepreneur, or a small business owner. And best of all, in my opinion, they also consolidate and communicate with services you might already use, like uh, Google Drive, Excel, MailChimp, and QuickBooks. Whether it's their templates, their automation, or the e-signatures, which is huge, signing PDFs is so boring, um, they make it much easier to get through the paperwork and get back to what you want to do. And right now, HoneyBook is offering our listeners 50% off when you visit tryhoneybook.com slash spirits. That also applies, by the way, to monthly or annual plans. That's tryhoneybook.com slash spirits for half off your first year. tryhoneybook.com slash spirits. 
And finally, we are sponsored this week by Stitch Fix. Now, I have by now an excellent collection of button downs and sweaters from Stitch Fix. But what I needed recently was some more like stylish but uh, professional items that I could wear to big meetings in the city. And I was very happy to get what I might describe as like a subtle floral blazer, which I have lots of loud floral blazers, but sometimes you want a subtle floral blazer. And Stitch Fix came through for me. They are an online personal styling service that delivers your favorite clothing, shoes, and accessories directly to your home. They both have brands that you know and love and also exclusive styles that you can't find anywhere else. After completing your style profile online, your expert personal stylist will send you a hand-picked box of items based on your style and preferences. They really help everybody look their best. They have solutions for feminine clothing, masculine clothing, kids all over the U.S. and now the U.K. as well. Now, you can do a subscription if you want stuff delivered every so often, but you don't have to. You can also get new pieces on demand. Shipping, exchanges, and returns are always free. And the $20 styling fee is automatically applied toward anything you keep from your box. But if they really hit it out of the park, and you love every item in your box, you can get 25% off the total price at stitchfix.com spirits. Sign up at stitchfix.com spirits for your first box and get 25% off when you keep everything in it. One more time, that's stitchfix.com spirits. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games. And now let's get back to the show. So Amanda, there are a couple of other Pokemon that we're familiar with from other generations that have Galarian variations that give it a little additional European flavor to the Pokemon. Like Farfetch'd, my favorite Pokemon, my leak soldier. Farfetch'd is definitely one of them. Not one I'm going to particularly talk about because I'm sure we can dive into Arthurian Night Legend at some point. But the first one, just listen to our episode with uh, with Christian. That's all you got to do. Someone did recently listen to it and they said, oh my God, I love this so much. So it made me happy. Yeah. One of my personal favorites is the Galarian form of Yamask, who can evolve into a new form, which is Runerigus. So okay. usually it evolves into Cofagrigus, which is inspired by Egyptian sarcophagi and the supposed, quote unquote, cursed Egyptian tombs. Not a huge fan sure. of that. Feels a little racist, not going to lie. Um, but in Sword and Shield, Runerigus is inspired by the Ingvar runestones. Uh, before I get into what those are, let me read you the Pokedex description of Runerigus. So, oh, yeah. A powerful curse was woven into an ancient painting. After absorbing the spirit of Yamask, the painting began to move. And also, never touch its shadow-like body or you'll be shown the horrific memories behind the picture carved into it. <laughs> Oh, yep. That very, uh, very Watchmen, uh, like, memory drug vibes there. Yes, I've been playing a lot of the new Star Wars game because I got it for Jake for Christmas. And the main character has the ability of basically clairvoyance where he can sense force echoes and, like, see Mm -hmm. what happened to those items before, you know, in the past. This is also a cool kind of through line to my, like, historiography comment, which is, like, how how do we talk about history um, and how do we evidence it? So having a Pokemon that like interacts with a painting uh, is fascinating. Yeah. Going to the root source of 
of what this Pokemon is based off of, uh, the Ingar runestones are a series of 26 Scandinavian runestones that were raised to commemorate those who died in the Swedish Viking expedition of the Caspian Sea of Ingar the Far Traveled, which is my favorite Viking name I think I've ever read. I love that more than anything. Uh, They're really actually rather beautiful, and a lot of them are still fully intact, despite the fact that they're dated to around the late 19th century to early 11th century, because Ingvar's expedition to the Caspian Seas was between 864 and 1041. Nice long time. I don't think he was leading them personally for that over 100 year span. (laughs) Here is actually a translation of one of the runestones. It is known as U654. And Vetter and Karl and Kitty and Blessy and Darfur raised the stone in memory of Gunnolfir, their father, who was killed in the east with Ingvar. May God help their spirits. Alriki, I carved these stones. He could steer a cargo ship well. Oh. And a lot of them have that. It's like, here's who raised the stone in memory of this person. They died while with Ingvar. Um, and then the person who carved it, like like the inscription is like, oh, yes, this is me. I did this. And then a compliment about that person. I love that, though. Like, it gives you some idea of the person. And clearly they're doing this for, you know, people in the future who don't have firsthand experience with the deceased. So having, um, you know, not just the kind of memory of the person beyond their name, but also evidence of authorship, I think is extremely neat. Yeah. And oh, yeah, I see the the runes now totally Renarigus is based on this. Yes, for sure. And they're really, really beautiful, too. I think they're like from the 26 that I was looking at, there's only like two or three people who actually carved all of them. Or really? carved the majority of them. So it's it's really interesting to see who did what. Yeah, definitely room for like personal style here. They actually remind me of... um. Uh, John Wick's tattoo that you see in uh, in the newest John Wick, mm-hmm. the kind of like it's like arched in a, in you know it's a tombstone shape with like arched uh, words around the outside and then something else in the middle. Love it. I still need to see most of the John Wick films. Uh, Julia, I know you made me watch one while we were hanging out the other during the summer. And it was great, was it not? It was excellent. I just need to sit down and actually watch them. True. Okay. So going back to. Pokemon. Um, I really actually like this particular twist on an already existing Pokemon line, especially because the Ingvar stones are probably not as well known overall as like Egyptian tombs. You know what I mean? Right. Or the Rosetta Stone. Also, I think it's interesting that Yamask can only evolve into Runerigus if the player travels under the stone bridge in the Dusty Bowl after Yamask has taken 49 hit points of damage without fainting. Uh, Maybe it's just (laughs) me, but I also really just love specific evolutionary triggers in Pokemon. Yeah, uh, for Surfetched, which is the Galarian evolution of Farfetched, um, which is like has a giant leak uh, sword and shield, you have to get uh, three critical hits. So you basically have to be a good knight in order to become a knight. That makes sense. Oh, also, I've seen pictures of Sir. Is it Surfetched? It sure is. I love Surfetched. But I've seen pictures, and I think that might actually be a lance instead of a sword. Oh. So getting the critical, the three critical hits is what you need in order to basically win a jousting match. That makes total sense. I didn't know that. There you go, Amanda. Amazing. I love Whoa. it. Uh, Speaking of the Vikings and Galarian variations of existing Pokemon, I want to talk about the Galarian version of Meowth and its evolution, Berserker. 
Yep. Purr, circer. Love it. So the Galarian form of Meowth is probably inspired by Norwegian forest cats, as implied by the sword Pokedex description, quote, living with a savage seafaring people has toughened this Pokemon's body, so much of its parts have been turned to iron. Whoa. Yeah. So Norwegian forest cats were most likely a breed of cat that were brought to Norway by the Vikings around 1000 AD. They often served as ship's cats, catching mice on Viking ships and were prized for their hunting and climbing skills. So Norwegian forest cats were often called fairy cats. And here's a description of uh, a folkloric tale about mountain cats. It was mountain dwelling fairy cats with an ability to climb sheer rock faces that other cats could not manage. I want them. I want it's so big and fluff. I love. I mean, when you said forest cat, I was picturing like a bobcat sized animal. And I was like, they put bobcats on ships. Oh, my. I think they're pretty big. They're like they tend to be comparable to Maine Coons, I believe, which are those big, yeah. big hairy cats. Big old cat. Big old yeah. cats. So the evolution of the Galarian Meowth, like I said, is Berserker. Uh, and it's very clearly inspired by the Berserker, which I think we've talked about before on the show. Uh, but I'll catch us up in case I'm misremembering. Berserkers or wolfskins were a special group of warriors that were associated with the god Odin. Rather than fighting in traditional battle formations, they preferred to operate in smaller groups attacking independently. So Odin was said to give them both aggression and courage, and sources said that they would attack like animals, that they felt no pain, and that iron and fire could not injure them. Yeah. Uh, however, it is said that after a battle, they were left extremely weakened, the battle basically completely spending them. So it's mm. it's very much, if you've, if you've played D&D, it's basically <laughs> a barbarian, more or less. Yeah. And I also think that we'd be remiss if we didn't mention the connection between this evolutionary line and Freya's cats. Uh, in the prose Edda, it is said that Susanmir, her hall, is large and beautiful, and when she travels, she drives two cats and sits in a chariot. It was also said that, quote, to those mortals who, with thoughtful kindness, place a pan of milk in the cornfields for her cat's refreshment, she was specially gracious and protected their crops from foul weather and other mishap. So good. Also, it like across cultures, never a bad idea to just leave out some milk. Yeah. Just, just leave out a dish of milk. In general, just like milk or beer. It'll make something happy. Totally. Freya's cats were also specifically tomcats, and some scholars interpreted that since Freya was a female fertility goddess, that the relationship was representative of male and female sexuality combined. I see that, yeah. yeah. Also, Freya, always traveling in style, man. Always. Just always so good. Love her. Uh, this one is worth mentioning only because it's so adorable, but you probably already know what its mythological inspiration comes from. The Galarian Ponyta and Rapidash. It's a unicorn, Julia. It is. You have one of these, Amanda? No, not yet. Okay. I, I gotta go. Oh. I gotta get on it, though. It's so cute. I love it. So according to the Pokedex, its small horn hides a healing power. With a few rubs from this Pokemon's horn, any slight wound you may have will be healed. And this Pokemon will look into your eyes and read the contents of your heart. If it finds evil there, it promptly hides away. So uh, this is a great play on the idea that European unicorns were able to sense purity and goodness, uh, usually in the guise of virginity in middle age stories. Again, virginity is a social construct. You're not pure, mm -hmm. depending on what you have or have not done. In Physiologus, a unicorn was said to be able to be trapped by a maiden. Again, 
a woman who hasn't had sex. Uh, unicorns, right. which could be violent in nature, were subdued by the presence of that, quote, innocent woman and could be tamed. The reference to the healing horn also comes from the Middle Ages, where narwhal tusks were used as ceremonial cups that were said to neutralize poison when drank from. It is also said that you could turn that horn into a powder, and it was said to cure many diseases, detect poison, and was often given as a gift to royalty. Okay, so can you not see why I would think, pre-spirits, that narwhals were fake? <laughs> no, because narwhals... I'm just saying. I'm just saying. And Julie, uh, the reason I don't have a Galarian Ponyta is because it's only available in Pokemon Shield, which, um, you know, every every time there's they sort of have like a masculine and feminine forms of the games, like it often kind of maps out into those constructs and the sort of shields, I guess, being feminine because it's not a sword. Um, I don't really understand or think that that's true. But uh, yeah, Ponyta is um, is restricted to that one only. So, Amanda, the final set of Pokemon that I want to talk about isn't exactly mythology based, but I want to talk about them because they're super interesting and they're also a reference to an archaeological and museum phenomenon that I'm obsessed with. Ooh, very spirit. So these are Dracovish, Arctovish, Dracozult, and Arctozult. Okay. Do you do you remember them from the games? They're the ones that you can evolve via the fossils. They're like the dinosaur Pokemon. Yeah. There's always a dinosaur yes. Pokemon in the series. <laughs> there is. You're like, I have a fossil and we can just bring these back to life because apparently Pokemon is set in Jurassic Park world. Yeah, apparently that's a thing. Um, all of them look really horrifying to me. So I do have a couple of them from the fossils. I need to make sure I get all four um, to catch them all, you know, mm -hmm. but all of them look a little bit like creature mashups, which we all know I'm not a huge fan of. Yes, and there's a reason behind that. But first, I'm going to list off the descriptions from the Pokedexes real quick, okay? Dracovish's Pokedex reads, Its mighty legs are capable of running at speeds exceeding 90 miles per hour, but this Pokemon can't breathe unless it's underwater. Odd. Really? Yeah. Arctovish is, The skin on its face is impervious to attack, but breathing difficulties made this Pokemon go extinct anyway. Oh, it's a little pug. Oh, no. <laughs> Dracozult uh, reads, In ancient times, it was unbeatable thanks to its powerful lower body, but it went extinct anyway after it depleted its plant-based food sources. No! And then Arctozult is, This Pokemon lived on prehistoric seashores and was able to preserve food with the ice on its body. It went extinct because it moved so slowly. So Since when? Does extinction exist in the Pokemon universe? This is so dark. It does now because fossils, right? Oh, no. Okay. So these four Pokemon, uh, if you look at them, like Amanda, you said, they are weird looking. They're weird looking yeah. Pokemon. So more than most Pokemon, which is saying something because there's a lot yes. of weird looking Pokemon. And this is because they look like a mishmash of Pokemon. Now, these Pokemon are inspired by several incidences in museums across Europe where fossils were brought in and then put oh. together completely wrong. Just completely oh. wrong. Uh, one of my favorite examples of this is the Otto von Gurich unicorn, which was the skeleton of a woolly rhinoceros that was interpreted by Otto von Gurich, who is the mayor of Magdeburg, Germany, as a unicorn and was put together as such. I, can you Google that for me real quick? The Otto von yes. Gurich unicorn? Just so you can see I'm how ridiculous this thing looks. I do want you to know that just for me, for fun, I wrote Otto Van Unicorn. It got me where I had to go. Exactly. Yeah, I see it. Can you describe it to our audience real quick, please? Yes. Uh, looks like 
obviously a dinosaur like ribs and and midsection obviously a dinosaur head Mm -hmm. and then just like a probably like an eroded femur (laughs) as a very very long unicorn horn yeah it's it's not great so later a german author named gottfried leibniz added the illustration of the quote-unquote unicorn to a book, concluding that it was a chimera of many known creatures. He wrote in his book, quote, The horn, together with the tail, several ribs, dorsal vertebrae, and bones were brought to the town's serene abyss. One is thus inclined to suspect that nature, using volcanoes as furnaces and mountains as alembics, has accomplished (laughs) in her mighty works what we play at with our little examples in laboratories. Horrifying. I also sent you a link to someone who on Twitter visited uh, the skeleton mm-hmm. and then drew a photo of what <gasps> it would look like. It's just it's just arms and tail and horn and head. It That's l- it. It looks like if a gorilla met a like a seal, a seal plus narwhal horn. Yeah. Yep. It's that's what it's it looks really like. scary. I don't love it. You're missing a bunch there, bud. You're missing a bunch <laughs> there. Otto. So many things you're missing there. Oh, gosh. And of course, this also happened all the time for fraud. People would um, put together fossils of different creatures and both in life and also as a like plot in an elementary episode, uh, claim that it was a skeleton of a dinosaur or a creature that it was not. Absolutely. And I think I, I recently went to the uh, Museum of Natural History here in New York, and they had a great part of the exhibit where they talked about how we put together fossils has changed over time. Oh. And specifically, like, they took, for example, the Tyrannosaurus rex and showed how it was positioned very upright, and then they realized for balance that it would probably be down further, and now it's, like, almost completely, like, turned 90 degrees from the way that it was originally put together. Really? Yeah. Isn't that interesting? Anyway. It really is. I love history and also archaeology. And museums. I love you, museum professionals. You're all great. So, Amanda, that that is uh, that's the Pokemon that I thought were probably the most interesting and most mythologically inspired from Sword and Shield. How, how did I do? I think you did great. I am so glad to know more about these wonderful, fine, pokey friends. And after this recording, I am going to pull out my Switch, which I now carry around with me, and hang out in the wild area while I uh, stare at a spreadsheet. I love it. Fantastic. Uh, And remember, listeners, stay creepy. Stay cool. Catch them all. Thanks again to our sponsors at Skillshare.com slash Spirits 2. You can get two free months of Skillshare Premium. At TryHoneyBook.com slash Spirits, you can get 50% off your first year of HoneyBook. And at stitchfix.com slash spirits, get 25% off when you keep all of the items in your box. Spirits was created by Amanda McLaughlin, Julia Shafini, and Eric Schneider, with music by Kevin McLeod and visual design by Allison Wakeman. Keep up with all things creepy and cool by following us at Spirits Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and Tumblr. We also have all of our episode transcripts, guest appearances, and merch on our website, as well as a form to send us your urban legends at spiritspodcast.com. Join our member community on Patreon, patreon.com slash spiritspodcast for all kinds of behind the scenes stuff. Just $1 gets you access to audio extras with so much more available too. Recipe cards, director's commentaries, exclusive merch, and real physical gifts. 
We are a founding member of Multitude, a collective of independent audio professionals. If you like spirits, you will love the other shows that live on our website at multitude.productions. And above all else, if you liked what you heard today, please share us with your friends. That is the very best way to help us keep on growing. Thank you so much for listening. Till next time.